everyone. Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. We'll be looking at Advent this week. We're going to continue our four-part series here um, Before we do that, just want to quickly touch on a few things, a few different announcements. One thing that we got coming up this week is a Christmas party. I think I should have a slide there for you. There you go. Awesome. So this week we have the Christmas party again on Friday. It's going to be here on Friday night at 7. God bless you. Um, So the only things you need to bring are uh, yourself You need to bring an ugly sweater if you so choose to. We're going to have a few games here, but one of the prizes we're going to give is for the the one with the ugliest sweater. So I encourage you to come with uh, the ugliest sweater you can find. Um, And also, uh, we're asking parents as well to bring some desserts or snacks and all that stuff. We're not going to have like food food, but just um, different, you know, Christmas treats and all that stuff. So if you want to bring something, feel free to bring that. Uh, We'll have hot chocolate here as well hot chocolate station with some different things you can make hot chocolate with. But it's going to be a good time. I invite you to come. It's going to be fun. Bring your friends. Uh, Apart from that, the only other thing we really got going on in this month is this party and also our last D group. Um, So this week you have your regular D groups. And then the week after that, um, on Wednesday, we have our last group gathering here. So again, I made this announcement last week for this uh, past uh, Wednesday. Um, but if you are in a D group, if you've been part of one, I encourage you to come together for the last group gathering. We had my father-in-law speak at the last one. It was great. Um, and I'm excited to close it off strong and close out the end of the year. So again, uh, if you're part of that, I want to see you there. Hopefully you can make it. Um, so today we're going to be continuing, as I mentioned, our series on Advent. Could somebody please, if you remember, tell me what we talked about last week? I'm looking for one word. Uh, no, not hope. Hope. Hope, but remembering was part of that. Um, yes, hope was the thing that we talked about. Traditionally, the first week of Advent is dedicated to hope, studying and looking at that, reflecting at our living hope. Right? The answer is pretty easy. If I were to tell you, what should you place your hope in? More often than not, in this room, I would hear Jesus, which is the correct answer. However, uh, I wanted to go beyond that and encourage you guys by giving you something, as I said last week, uh, you can grab onto and take note of as you left. A lot of the times when we think about Hope, it's synonymous a lot with uh, joy, right? It's tied in together. What we place our hope in is ultimately how we find joy or if we find joy. And a lot of the times what we're placing our hope in is not Jesus, although we know it should be him. We place our hope in things like comfort, acceptance. We place our hope in uh, achievements, right? Wanting to succeed, control, have power. But as we looked at uh, Hebrews 10, we see how God is the one who is all-knowing, loving, forgiving, faithful, is our comforter, is who we can look to for acceptance because he welcomes us. Despite knowing everything about us, he still loves us and welcomes us and desires to have a relationship with you and he's able to forgive. He is able to cleanse you of your sin. 
Um, this is who we find hope in, living hope, uh, eternal hope, hope that does not fall short, hope that does not um, um, fail. That's who we should put our, our hope in. Um, and continuing on from that, right, as we talk about what, what are we bent towards, what are we uh, inclined to place our hope in, I want to continue the series of Advent and shift gears just a little bit. But talk about this morning, peace. Peace is typically the second um, uh, section here as we celebrate Advent together. But by doing so, I want to draw our attention to the book of Isaiah. In chapters 9, um, we're going to be looking at 6 and 7, these two verses. We're going to look at a few other verses too. But in these two passages specifically, I think we find one of the greatest Christmas passages in all of Scripture, and here we have the prophecy of the Messiah, of Jesus. And so, again, let me just read this for us, and then we'll, we'll get into it a little bit deeper here. But Isaiah 9, uh, verses 6 and 7, it should be on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can pull it up too. But this is what it says. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this is an incredibly... Exciting passage. Um, you, would, you would see this in, ultimately, if you're hearing this from the first time from the prophet, um, this is cause to rejoice and to celebrate. This is something that's exciting. We're going to see here that um, for us, a child will be born, that on him the government shall be held upon, right? It talks about how his governments, uh, there will be no end to it, and how he will come. Um, and he will establish his kingdom. This is all exciting news for the people of God. They're hearing this and they're getting excited. But before we get into what this all means, uh, before we kind of try to understand why this is something that we should celebrate and, and still look to today, but and, uh, just take a look at what they were going through uh, at this time, I think that's also an important uh, piece of understanding what's really being said here in this text. So if you know anything uh, about this book of Isaiah, in chapter 8 he is addressing or talking to them, the people of Israel, and he's telling them about um, this inevitable time of gloom and misery that's coming upon them. So let me try to frame this for you. This is great news. This is wonderful news, joyful news, right? This is reason to be excited and happy, but in the context that this is being delivered in, um, we see that this is actually a time of despair. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, have you ever gotten like good news, but you're in such like a terrible place in life and things are going so wrong that you don't even flinch, right? You just, you're, you're going through a lot and you, you happen to hear that there's good news or something good comes up or happens, but it just doesn't feel right, doesn't sit well with us because of our circumstance. There's also the flip side of that. There's vice versa, right, that that also works, and that happens sometimes in our lives when we're kind of in the rut and in the mud and just going through some really hard times. 
But then all of a sudden we hear this great news. We're, we're presented with this encouraging gospel and all of a sudden this flip switches and, and everything that we were struggling with before, right, moments ago, kind of our circumstances that we find ourselves in, not that they're irrelevant anymore, but for some reason, right, this news is able to bypass all of that and bring us joy, right? It gives us hope. It gives us peace. And that's what's happening here in verse um, six and seven with this promise, but in this chapter as a whole. If you look at chapter nine, just the very beginning of it, again, I alluded to this before, but he is talking about the prophet Isaiah here of some really dark times. In verses one and two, he's carrying on from the previous chapter, chapter eight, where he warns Judah about this coming invasion from Assyria. Um, let me read that for you real quick. It says this in verse one, but there will be no gloom for her who, has, who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, in the land of Nephtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea in the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, I bless you. The invasion of the Assyrians uh, was uh, obviously terrible news, right? If you were to tell you, oh, we're going to be attacked. The United States is going to be attacked. Don't worry. But in the end, um, you will be saved, um, like if, we, if we were to hear that news, it's, it's somewhat conflicting. It's difficult for us to wrestle through, right? There's this inevitable enemy in opposition that we're going to be facing, and that's what they're hearing here. The Jewish people are hearing, um, especially these areas in the northern regions of the Promised Land, um, that they're going to be attacked. And that's why in this context, the promise of chapter 9 um, is so important. It's all the more precious, right? If you get news, if, if somebody tells you, hey, your nation's going to be attacked, you're, you're gonna be attacked once more, you don't wanna hear that per se. It's not an exciting thing to hear about, but if you were to follow that up with a promise like this, something that you're, you've been waiting for all of your life, it, it lightens that burden just a little bit, you would imagine, No? If you were to follow that up with this caveat, hey, but don't worry, God's kingdom is coming. Um, and it's coming to this people. It makes it that much more special to them. And so as you continue to read in verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. This is kind of giving us some further context and also um, pointing to the birth of Jesus and what his life would look like. If you look at, uh, again, what it's saying here, it's talking about these northern tribes because they were typically the first people to suffer. If you were to think about geographically as well, uh, what an invasion on the promised land would look like, uh, the people that were uh, in these northern regions were the first to suffer to the Assyrians. And not just the Assyrians, but whenever they were attacked and invaded, these people were the ones that were confronted with the enemy time and time again. And what's happening here is there's a promise being said that in God's mercy, they would receive a special blessing and be the first to see the light of the Messiah. And so again, here, while the context is dark, there's a lot of anguish, there's a lot of despair in some ways, misery, right? These people have walked in darkness. 
they will see a great light, and that's what makes the difference. As we spend time looking ahead, looking at the birth of Jesus with great anticipation, I mentioned this before, but the topic of our discussion this morning for week two of Advent is peace. Peace. And reading in these verses in Isaiah, what's striking to me or what's important for us to remember, and I think hold on to as we get to the end here, I'll touch on this again, but there's not really like a clear instruction here. As, as I mentioned in the book of Acts, when we went through it, we talked about how scripture can a lot of the times be prescriptive and descriptive. A lot of the times it describes what's happening, it gives us a historical account, paints a picture for us, gives us a narrative, and then sometimes it's prescriptive. It's very clear with application, right? Some of the times it says, hey, do not kill, do not murder, do not steal. It tells you explicitly what you need to do and gives you commands and instruction. And, and here, as we look at this chapter in Isaiah, we don't really see that per se. What you do see here is just verses that tell us all about God and who he is. Um, and it doesn't talk about us at all. Um, this passage here is about the person of Jesus. And if I were to ask you here, what could you tell me about Jesus? There would be so many things that you probably would say. You would tell me about how he um, was a Jewish man. He was born in a manger, right? You would tell me about his birth. You would tell me about his earthly ministry, right? All the things that he taught. You would tell me that he died, that he was crucified, and that he rose again. You would tell me he ascended back into heaven. We just talked about that. He ascended back into heaven. He is reigning. He is sitting at the right hand of God as we speak, and he is coming back. But here, we get to see more in detail who he is and who he will be forever and what those implications are for us. But what does knowing these things about Jesus mean to us? There's no direct uh, command or obligation here. But what can knowing Jesus mean for you and I? And what does it have to do with peace? If you look at verse 6, we see that this is directed for us in some way because the first thing that it says is this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And, and what's cool in thinking about the birth of Jesus, as we reflect again on the coming of Christ, if you were to think of something that's really weak and helpless in a lot of ways, um, a baby's kind of at the top of that list. Right? There's nothing really quite more um, in need of dependency than a baby, a child. <laughs> but... Um, for Jesus to fully identify with humanity and to display the servanthood um, that he did, the nature of God, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. He came as a baby. Um, one of the things that I find interesting here, again, as you continue to read, it says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. God's plan, his secret weapon for this war that wages between good and evil in our world was a baby. 
Again, it's, it doesn't really make too much sense to us. You wouldn't think of that being the case. But God's answer to like the tyrants in the world, the evil that was very uh, present and uh, prevalent, was not to send another bully or dictator. Instead, he sends a baby to be born in Bethlehem. Um, There's this man or this individual named Gail Irwin who writes about the government of God's promises and makes note of several different things. Uh, Like, in fact, what might such a government look like? Now, I'll be quoting Gail here, but they say, first of all, it would look like its king. Politicians of this day look uh, look for what they can get from you. Yet Jesus looks for what he can do for you. Leaders of this day surround themselves with servants, yet Jesus surrounds us with his servanthood. Leaders of this day use their power to build their empire, but Jesus uses his power to wash our feet and make us clean and comfortable. Leaders of this day trade their influence for money. God so loved that he gave. And just like his people when they struggled, we too can rest assured that God is not scrambling to come up with some alternative plan, a plan B. Right? This is a real threat that these people are facing. The, the threat here, the Assyrians, uh, were not nice people. Right? If you look at historians and what they would say about these people, they pretty much equate these Assyrians to being the Nazis of this ancient world. That's how serious they were of an opposition. And yet, what we see in Jesus is, although generals of that day needed regular wars to keep their weapons and skills up to date and ensure their own advancement, Jesus brings peace and rest to hearts. And this is one of, uh, and this is the one who we celebrate on Christmas, Jesus. And in him, Uh, There's so much that we stand again. Isaiah 6, it continues to talk about Jesus and illustrates that for us. In chapter 9, verse 6, it says kind of a list of names that Jesus is. And I want to take just some time here to explain that and and really understand what that means. Um, The first thing that it says, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. So what that means is Jesus is not just some impressive counselor. When you think of wonderful, you don't just think of um, something that is grand um, in, in size and stature or even appearance. And he is those things, but what he's talking about here is a miracle-working counselor. Uh, the glory of who he is and what he has done for us should fill us with wonder. I don't think you can really look at Jesus, see him for who he is, and be bored, not be amazed by who he is. When you look at God and his, and his holiness, his grandness, and all the things that he has done, it's impossible for us to truly grasp that and understand that and not be impressed and, and draw, uh, drawn to him in amazement, in wonder, in awe. And again, the other side of that, it's not just wonderful, but it says counselor, 
Again, his counseling works. Sometimes we try to find counsel here and failed people and, and, and we ourselves struggle with things. We try to find solace in others who are also broken and it helps. And I even recommend it. But how much greater is the counsel of the one who created us, who loves us, who is perfect and wonderful, all-knowing, right? He's sometimes the last person we come to with the things that are weighing heavy on our hearts and our minds. Instead, we think other people can fix that rather than going to God with our problems, bringing that to him. What's amazing about God is that Last week, like we talked about, he knows everything about us, right? I said he knows everything that you have done, right? The good in your heart, the good in your lives. But most importantly, he knows all of the bad stuff, all of the ugly parts of your life. Everything you try to hide from other people, he knows in detail. And yet, he loves you and he welcomes you. But he doesn't just know you. Beyond that, he also understands you as a counselor. He sympathizes with you. He understands the state of this world, our helplessness, our need for him. And what he's able to do is personalize a walk of faith that works for you and create a unique story for you. And he's the reason for that. The next thing that we see about God is that he, or Jesus, that he is a mighty God. He is a mighty God, and what this reminds us of is that he is the God of all creation and glory, the God who reigns in heaven and the one who is worthy of worship and praise. That's pretty self-explanatory. He is powerful, all-powerful. Everlasting Father. Now this one when it says he is everlasting father, it can be a little bit confusing, but I want to explain it. The Hebrew word here identifies Jesus as the source of all authority, right? As the author of all eternity. He is the creator himself. However, this does not mean that Jesus himself is the person of the father in the Trinity, if that makes sense. So again, this is not a Trinitarian statement, but it highlights his his authority, his care, and how much he welcomes us. And the fact that it says everlasting, again, talks about how he always will, right? Yesterday, today, tomorrow, for all of eternity, after this life. And again, lastly here, um, as we're reading the names of, of Jesus, the one I think obviously is really prevalent to the theme of today's conversation is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who makes peace, especially between God and man. We know that he accomplished that through the cross. His cross reconciles us to himself while we were still sinners, as scripture says, while we were still enemies. And we don't do that. We don't do that on our own. We can't do that. We can't be reconciled to God without the cross. Without Jesus, it's impossible. We need him. Only he can. And there's this quote that I want to read here because I think it kind of summarizes all of these names and puts them together in this one concise thought. John Calvin, he says this, and I think this is a profound challenge and application for us. Whenever it appears to us 
that everything is in a ruinous condition. And I think everybody can relate to that. I think everybody here has had a moment in their lives where things have been uh, far from ideal. Nobody here, nobody here has had a perfect life and everything has gone right. God bless you. There have been times in your life and maybe you're going through that today, right now. You're in a difficult season of life, struggling with a lot of different things. Pay attention to what he says here. John Calvin says, let us recall to our remembrance that Christ is called wonderful because he is inconceivable methods of assisting us. And because his power is far beyond what we are able to conceive. When we need counsel, let us remember that he is the counselor. When we need strength, let us remember that he is mighty and strong. When new terrors spring up suddenly every instant, and when many deaths threaten us from various quarters, let us rely on that eternity of which he is with good reason called the Father. And by the same comfort, let us learn to soothe all temporal distress, all momentary distresses. When we are inwardly tossed by various tempests, when the storms of life come, and they will come, when the storm of life comes, and when Satan attempts to disrupt our consciousness, let us remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace, and that it is easy for him quickly to ease all of our uneasy feelings. Thus will these titles confirm for us and more in the faith of Christ and fortify us against Satan and against hell itself. What this means is laid out for us in the following verses. In verse seven, it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. His kingdom will forever grow and expand. And it's not because of our own strength and our own abilities, but because of his grace. This is a promise that he has purchased with the blood of Christ. And this is guaranteed. Right? We can know for sure this is happening. Again, guys, this is not a suggestion. He's not telling them, hey, this may happen. Right? He's not playing a game where he's like, oh, it's 50-50, right? What God is saying here, it may happen or it may not. If God makes a promise, it's going to happen. It's who he is. It's in his nature. And so God, in making this promise, this is a guarantee for them. And in the last verse or the last section of this verse here kind of uh, emphasizes that. It says here, scripture, that uh, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In summation, right? He concludes it by saying he will do this with the zeal of the Lord of hosts. He will do this. Essentially, he will do this with everything he has got. This idea of zeal here as we read it is like this fire burning within the heart of God. 
Uh, this word is used elsewhere in scripture, and it talks about the burning hearts of a bride and a groom in, in chapter 8 of Song of Solomon. It says it's, it burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. It's like this intense passion. You might not understand that, obviously, because you're not a bride or a groom yet, and you don't know what that's like. But maybe for an illustration for you, it's like, um, it's like uh, a football player puts on his helmet. You've probably seen him. Maybe, ladies, you have not seen it in person, but you know what I'm talking about, at least the concept. But a football player puts on his helmet and just bashes his head on the locker because he's so fired up, right? Like you've, you know that. You've seen or you've punched the wall. You've done something. You're so intense, and you're so rallied up. You're pumped up. Right? He puts his helmet on, bangs his head a few times on the locker, or even with his friends where they're running on the field, bang each other, get concussions and everything. Um, that's like, that's what this is talking about. It's this passion. It's this fervent thing that's in their hearts, right? They're all in. They're bought in. They're committed. <laughs> you don't have to doubt if that person is going to give everything they have. If there's a person slamming their head in the locker several times, I'm pretty confident that person is going to go all out. The same guarantee that God is zealous that he has this flaming, burning fire within him to see um, these things played out is, again, a guarantee for us. It shows us that these things will come um, to fruition, right? And, and, and of course, what that does is secures our hope. It secures peace, right? It guarantees those things. It guarantees that because of the passion of God, because that's what carries us to um, and toward the inevitable return of Christ. Again, God is not wondering what his next move is going to be. He's not trying to figure out what his plan is going to be. He's not impulsive. He's not reactionary. He knows exactly what his plan is, and his heart is on fire for the, for the triumph of Jesus from beginning to end, right? right up until the very end, not just his birth, but until um, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and until the day he returns in forevermore. And I promise you that you can trust him. I promise you uh, that you can be secured by this promise. God's heart couldn't be more wholehearted towards you and I. Um, uh, I have these chairs in my office and for some reason, I don't know how, but uh, probably just people sitting on it over time, the screws kind of got loose on the bottom and the legs are really wobbly. It's like you go to sit on it and the chair's like this. So uh, for a good time there, for a few weeks, nobody sat in my chair because everybody feared for their life that the chair was going to collapse on them. And so, again, as a youth pastor, Jacob and I um, and our admin, we meet regularly. We would meet in our room. But now we don't anymore because of the chairs. However, I did fix the chairs. I finally got around to getting a little, um, it was an Allen wrench. It's like that little L thing. I fixed it. I got like two of them before, and they were all too small. Finally found the right size, fixed it. Anyways, point being, the chair is fixed. I got two solid, sturdy chairs in my office now. You are more than welcome to come visit and take a seat and see for yourselves. But nonetheless, I don't want to get distracted here because I want to make this point before we finish. Um... They saw me fix my chairs, right? My admin, Jacob, everybody else, um, those two and some other people, they saw me fix the chair. At least everybody now knows that my chairs are fixed. And yet, for our meeting this week, 
Although my chairs are safe and we would have all our meetings in my office in the past, we still had the meeting this week in a different office because of the fear of the chairs. Just want to let you know the chairs are fixed. Um, but the point is this. They have this fear of sitting on the chairs even though it's not going anywhere. It's not going to fall. It's not going to wobble. It's sturdy now. But they're hesitant to place their full trust, their full, fi- their full faith in, um, for all intents and purposes, um, their full weight on the chair. And I think similarly, I think there's a lesson in that for us today. And it'll be on the screen here for you. And if you're writing things down, you should write this down. But it's lay your full weight down on the promise of God. Lay your full weight down on the promise of God. Again, God is not some distant God who's up in heaven with the superiority complex. Um, God, of course, he's certainly perfect and glorious and, and is separated from us in every way. But um, despite being worthy of all praise, he still cares for you and I and desires to have a relationship with us. Um, he, he has sent his son for us, as we read there in verse 6. Um, but also, I think another thing that I do want to just go back to in verses 1 and 2, because I think it shows us the insight uh, of the heart of God, is that when he's making this promise that, that the Messiah will come, it says that Jesus would come to Galilee, like I said, these northern regions. It says explicitly Galilee here. Galilee, of course, is this northern area that I mentioned, faced frequent and consistent attacks. They were the first ones to be attacked, the first ones to suffer, the first ones to have to deal with these uh, foreigners coming in. And so again, they suffered an incredible amount of loss, pain and hurt. They were probably accustomed to it to some extent. So when we see the promise where He says, this is where I will start my ministry. I think it speaks volumes of his heart for us. These are the people that suffer the most, that have continuously faced opposition. This is where I will start my ministry. This is where Jesus will come and these these people will see the light of the Messiah. Um, God, he doesn't see any of us, especially those suffering as expendable or meaningless and we are so incredibly dear to him so much so that he sent his one and only son trust me ladies and gentlemen he would not have done so if he didn't care for you and he didn't love you he didn't know what he was doing there isn't any prescriptive application here as i mentioned but isaiah although he doesn't direct us in any certain obedience or command he does point us to the promises of God. And so I think, again, referencing here what we see on the screen, lay your full weight on the promises of God. The application for us is believe them. We just have promises here in this chapter. Here are the promises. They are true. They will come to pass. These are real. This is the God Uh, who created all things. He's sending his son and his kingdom will reign forever. 
Really, the only question is here, and the only application is, is do you believe it? Do you believe that? Do you believe that what you read here is true? You either do or you don't. If you believe that God is who he says he is, then you do. You should. And if you don't, I want you to know that you can't. He is trustworthy. And that everything that we find here isn't a matter of what if. This happened years before Jesus came, and Jesus came, and he died for us. And he will rule, and he will reign forevermore, long after we're gone. I don't know if any of you have been to one, but a few years back, I went to uh, an all-expenses-paid trip on my honeymoon, and it was the best time of my life. I had a great experience. Um, it was one of the best weeks of my life, if not the, west, uh, not the best uh, week of my life. Um, I remember going there. We went to the DR, um, and it was just me and my wife enjoying our time together. Um, we were away from any distractions. Um, and my favorite part, obviously, specifically about this trip, obviously my favorite part was my wife, but um, my favorite part specifically about this trip was the fact that I didn't have to worry, or we didn't have to worry, about paying for anything. Um, you probably haven't had to pay for your own trip anyway, so this doesn't really pertain to you, but one day you might. But if you decide to go on an all-expenses-paid trip, it is incredible because you can just walk into a restaurant, sit down, order anything on the menu, and just get out. It is incredible. You just ask for stuff. They bring you stuff. Hey, sir, Mr. Arujo, can I help you with something? Yes. Um, and they'll bring it to you, and you don't have to worry about anything. They just cover it all for you, and it's amazing. You don't got to worry about anything. You don't have to think twice. Just enjoy just be comfortable. It's the most blissful and peaceful experience of my life because I wasn't thinking about circumstances. I wasn't worried about my finances. I wasn't worried about all these different things that I had to deal with even back home. I just, I knew where I was. I knew what was going on and, and I knew um, that I didn't have to worry, that I could have peace and, and enjoy this time with my wife. I, I do want to draw a similar illustration here because I, I want to remind you guys that God has paid the price already. Right? When we think about sin and we think about death, we think about all these things, this pain that we wrestle with and we, we, we struggle with, his son has paid the price already. He's already secured us a victory. The problem is some of us refuse to believe it. We just don't believe it. Some people choose a different life, and that's okay. If they, uh, we can't force that on anybody. We want all to know Christ and to have a relationship with him. People will choose not to believe but there's also a problem where even those that do believe, and I would believe that most of us in this room would say that we have a relationship with God, that we have accepted the free gift of salvation, but we still find it difficult to find peace. We still find it difficult because we rather cling on to pain, to misery, 
the circumstances of life, we rather hold on to those things rather than his promises and his assurances. I just want to challenge you to see what God can do, to see what Jesus can do, because I promise you that you can find rest in him. You can find peace that surpasses all understanding as we see Philippians say. The apostle Paul knows this, right? When we try to find peace in things here, inevitably those things fail, but in God and only in God can we find that peace that surpasses all of our understanding. It doesn't even make sense to the world around us or even to us, but we can have peace in him because of his promises. Because his son would come, which he did, and he will come back, and we can spend an eternity with him. The price has already been paid. You can enjoy a relationship with him. You don't have to worry about what's coming. You don't have to worry about the things that are happening around you. I'm not saying you can't be affected or you won't. You will have to wrestle with those things and it will be difficult, but you can still have peace because you know God is in control, because he is a wonderful counselor, because in him you have somebody who not only knows you, but cares for you and understands you and is mighty and works in ways you couldn't even imagine. You have a mighty God who is creator of all things that all of the massive difficulties that we face that stand before us are puny compared to how amazing and grand he is because he is also an everlasting father, one who cares for you, one who welcomes you. Not just now, not just when you're at your prettiest like some people, when you wear the right clothes, when you look the right part, when you smell good. Right, if you were at the fall retreat, you heard the story Kyle Gray said, right? And he thinks about how God loves us even when we're covered in you know what. God still embraces us and loves us and he is an everlasting father and he is also the prince of peace. He has made it possible for you to experience peace. Peace that you wouldn't be able to find or, or get anywhere else but through him. You can have peace with the father have peace with God and a relationship with him. But again, those things are guaranteed if you're willing to believe it, to lay your full weight on the promises of God, whether you choose to believe it or not, will determine whether or not you experience those things. So do you believe? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for this time. Thank you again for your promises. Thank you for the relationship that we can have with you the peace that we have, the hope, of course, the living hope that we can have and that's found in you, but also the peace that you offer us that we can't find anywhere else but in you. I pray, Lord, that no matter the circumstance, no matter what we face, Lord, we know that we serve a God and we have a Father who loves us and is much greater than all of the things before us. And I pray that we would trust in you and look to you during those times especially. I pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, guys, thank you again. Appreciate you guys. Hope you guys have a wonderful rest of the week. Enjoy.